Good morning. It's nice to see all of you. If you're visiting, my name is Dave Barry. I'm the senior pastor here. Uh, thank you for joining us. I'd love for you to have a Bible in your lap this morning as we continue to follow Jesus together in the Gospel of John. You can join me in John 14, and if you don't have a Bible, I'd love to get one to you. Raise your hands, and uh, Elder Bo will bring you one. Raise your hands high, and we'll get it to you soon. If you glance down in your Bible, you may notice, before I read our text this morning in John 14, uh, if you have a red-letter Bible, it's pretty easy to identify, but essentially, from chapter 13 through chapter 17 is virtually all red-letter. There's occasional questions from the disciples, but one of the things that makes preaching through this passage uniquely challenging is to keep things in context, because this is one conversation. And so... One of the difficulties this morning is we are picking right up, right in the middle of what Jesus is saying. So um, we'll have to work hard together this morning to make sure that we stay within context and understand his word. And you'll see why I say that in a few moments. If you would, look with me at John 14. Our text this morning is verses 7 through 14. Let me read them and pray. Beginning in verse 7, Jesus is in the middle of speaking and he says... If you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Well, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the father and it's enough for us. And Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the father. So how can you say, show us the father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father, who dwells in me, does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and... Greater works than these he will do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Well, this is God's word. Let's look to him in prayer. Father, Jesus has just told us, That the aim of all things is that the Father may be glorified in the Son. And so this morning we ask, according to your word and by your spirit, that you, Father, would gather glory from yourself in your Son through your people. And Lord, as Caleb prayed a few moments ago, we need your word to not return void, but to accomplish its purpose in each and every one of our hearts. And God, I ask that that would be the purpose of salvation of the lost, bringing the wayward back to you, prodigals home, that you would strengthen all of our faith as Jesus was strengthening the faith of the apostles on the pages of Scripture. Lord, you're bringing us into deep waters this morning in this text. There's many perplexities, 
things that have been taken out of context, things that are confusing to understand. And so we pray for your grace upon us to accomplish those purposes and more. To that end, Lord, would you let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, all of God's people said, amen. A personal story, right out of high school, I had the opportunity to go scuba diving off an island in southern Mexico. One of the dives we had motored out pretty far, actually quite far. We entered the water, it was, it was warm, the water was clear, and it was shining. We went down to the reef, the reef was drifting us along, and suddenly, and without warning, this warm current drifted us over a great shelf, just bottomless, seemingly. The earth fell away into the cold, deep and dark blackness. You could feel the temperature of the water change and get cold. The lighting turned to twilight. And there was almost a sense of vertigo of being just a few feet off the reef to, to nothing. And to the sheer mystery and vastness and even a feeling of danger of the waters. It was an extremely impressionable moment for me of... Um, of going out and being so utterly small and nothing and frightened. That's how I feel approaching our text this morning. (laughs) We are entering together deep and wondrous waters. These verses are theologically vast This is a difficult passage. Some of the words in it are well-worn, but so well-worn that they're decontextualized and treated as tweets and sound bites taken out of context to mean what they don't mean and more. There are things that are going to be hard to understand as we're confronted with the deep doctrines of the Trinity this morning. And there's things that Jesus says at the end of our our time, uh, especially when we look at verses Uh, 11, 12, and 13, and 14, about what Jesus has regarding works and prayer. So in that sense, the sermon is a little difficult this morning. It's a little bit more technical. It's a little bit more focused on, on trying to pull out weeds of wrong understanding and wrong perspective, and even things on the face of it. Well, he says that, but we're used to him saying that without paying attention to the context in which he says that. And more. Now, if you're just joining us by way of reminder, it's the upper room. It's Jesus' last Passover. It's his final words from 13 to 17, his final words before his crucifixion for our sins, and before that, his arrest and trial, and before that, the Garden of Gethsemane, and before that, the betrayal of Judas, and before that, this room. He's going to be killed, not 24 hours an hour. So that we can be saved. Jesus has washed the disciples' feet. Judas has left to betray him. And our text slows down to a three-hour meal, so to speak, from chapters 13 to 17. And we have a big, singular context of Jesus speaking, over which hangs his words that we were introduced to last week, Let not your hearts be troubled. 
And so that's woven over everything he says. He's de-troubling and untroubling his disciples' hearts. And he's doing that for us this morning. And so we're taking a soundbite to understand his words. Jesus continues fielding the disciples' confused and troubled questions. He spoke with Thomas earlier. Now uh, Philip comes in and asks questions. Jesus is fielding the disciples' confused and troubled questions, declaring that to know and see Jesus is to know and see the Father because of their mutual indwelling, whatever that means. And that the works that the Father does through Jesus, Jesus is now going to do those works through you and me and all of the disciples by his Spirit as we pray in his name. And like the disciples who remain confused and troubled at the words of Jesus, we too need the words of Jesus to give us increasing hope as they needed it, increasing comfort as they needed it, and increasing clarity. And God does this by giving us more of himself. That is Jesus' aim in this passage is to give us more of himself to expand the vastness of our understanding of who God is that we have gathered to worship this morning. So this morning, Jesus will strengthen our belief. He's going to give us hope and comfort, not only by giving us that profound glimpse into the Trinity and the mystery of the Trinity, but also that Jesus is working through the works of you and me. So if you're considering this morning the claims of Christ, I invite you to ask right now to think about who you think Jesus is, And then at the end of the message, compare what you think Jesus is to who Jesus says he is. And I challenge you to believe what Jesus says and to embrace it and to follow him with your life. And for those of us who do believe in Jesus, the questions for us are many this morning. But they center on who is Jesus? What is his relation to God, the Father? And what does it mean for us then for those who follow him? Ultimately, our text will give us two encouragements to belief, hope, and comfort because Jesus has gone to the Father. And so if you're taking notes, here are those two encouragements, the outline of our message this morning. Point number one, we're going to see Jesus has gone to the Father, therefore you must believe he is in the Father. It's verses 7 to 11. And then point number two, Jesus has gone to the Father Therefore, you must pray in his name to work his works. And that's verses 12 through 14. Well, put your scuba gear on. We're diving in. Point number one, Jesus has gone to the Father. Therefore, you must believe he is in the Father. Let's look at verses 7 through 11 one more time. If you had known me, Jesus says, you would have known my father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the father and it's enough for us. And Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the father. How can you say, show us the father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father 
who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father's in me, or else believe on the account of the works themselves. Now, we could spend the entirety of our lives in this passage, praying through, thinking through, drilling down to what Jesus is saying, that on the surface of it, his words are pretty straightforward and very simple. If you know me, you know the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You must believe I am in the Father and the Father's in me. Those are simple words that if you park on them and begin to think about them, they are the most profound words ever uttered in human existence. So let's back up. Jesus' words at the end of verse 7 about being the way, the truth, and the life, that's verse 6, and that no one comes to the Father except through him, His words prompt Philip's question in verse 8. If you know me, you know the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So Philip says, show us the Father. And Jesus indicates in verse 7 that if you know Jesus, you know the Father. Which means the opposite is true. If you don't know Jesus, then you don't know the Father. You don't know God. Since, of course, Jesus has just told us last week in the previous verse... No one comes to the Father except exclusively by Jesus. But then, shockingly, Jesus goes even further in verse 7. So we might think, I think I understand what he means when he says to know Jesus is to know the Father. But then Jesus goes further and he says, if you have seen Jesus, then you have seen the Father. Now, technically... Philip shouldn't have been surprised when Jesus said this. The reason I say technically is because just not a chapter or so before, at the end of chapter 12, Jesus has told us the same thing, that if you've seen him, you've seen the Father. Even so, Philip asks in verse 8, Jesus, it's enough for us. I don't know what he means by that exactly. Is is he exasperated? He doesn't know what Jesus is talking about. So if you, Jesus, if you would just show us the Father... That's good. All we need. Let us see the Father, and we, that's, that's, that's okay for us. Now, there's more to Philip's words, right? These guys know their Bibles inside and out. And so when Philip says to Jesus, show us the Father, Philip is quoting Moses. He's quoting old Moses from Exodus 33 and 34. Perhaps you remember that scene. Recall that while God had been writing with his own finger the Ten Commandments or the Ten Words on the two tablets, while God was doing that and Moses was waiting, Israel was breaking all of those commandments down in the valley below. And so Moses went down, saw it, broke the Ten Commandments because they, people, had broken them. Even so, in that episode in Exodus, God spared those who were faithful to his covenant. Moses sees this. He hears this. And so Moses marvels at God's mercy and loving kindness. And that prompts Moses, because God has called Moses back up on the mountain to write the tablets again. And so Moses simply says, in Exodus thirty-three eighteen, please show me 
your glory. Please show me your glory. Now, Moses is asking for something unique because Moses has already seen God's glory in the glory cloud that led the people out of Egypt and across the Red Sea and to the mountain that they're on. And it's the interchange between Moses and the Lord that is so magnificent and amazing that's in Philip's mind. God told Moses, in response to Moses' request to show me your glory, God tells Moses that God's going to make all of his goodness pass before Moses, that he's going to be gracious to whom he will be gracious, he's going to have mercy to whom he will have mercy, and then what Yahweh does is he hides Moses in a cleft of rock because he says to Moses, no man can see my face and live. And so God's going to pass by and Moses will see his back, as it were, and that's going to reveal his glory. It's going to reveal God's goodness and that's going to keep Moses alive because Moses can't see God's face. So then the Lord passes by and the most requoted text in scripture, Exodus 34, 6 through 8, here is God showing his glory. Here is God showing his goodness. He says his name. And the other layer of connection in Exodus, remember it was early in Exodus where God revealed himself in the burning bush to Moses. Who shall I say sent you? And the Lord says, I am who I am. Well, God's doing it again when he says, I am gracious to whom I am gracious, and I am merciful to whom I am merciful. And even the name Yahweh itself is built into the I am who I am. So when he goes by and he, and he says his name in Exodus 34, he says, Yahweh, Yahweh, I am, I am, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, Keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. This is literally the apex or a summit moment in the Old Testament. Moses wanted to see God. Moses couldn't see God's face, otherwise he would die. And so God passed by. And so now Jesus in this upper room is saying to the disciples, if you know me, you know the Father. And if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And so Philip hears that and he, he's hooked on that. He catches it and he says, Jesus, it's enough. Show us the Father. Give us what Moses had on the mountaintop. We want to see the Father. And here's what Philip and none of them realize. Is that Jesus has been showing them the Father all along. And it's not that they have only seen God's back. No, the disciples have seen God's smile on the face of Jesus Christ. And it's the very name of God that... God declared to Moses, it's that name of God with skin on, and his name is Jesus. Yahweh is salvation. Jesus. 
And they don't understand that. They don't understand that Jesus is God the Son incarnate. And the key reason the disciples are confused and troubled and dismayed is because they still don't understand who Jesus is. They are of little faith and thin belief. And friends, as it is for them, so it is with us. Understand that like these old brothers of ours, our dismay and our negative responses to troubles, the way that we emotionally respond or even interpret the difficulties of life are rooted in our little faith and our thin belief, which is rooted in a misunderstanding of who God is. So you could go excavate your sorrows, excavate your fears and problems, and you will find that deep down, your responses to sorrows and fears and problems are rooted in your understanding of who God is and your belief in His Word. So Jesus is not delivering them from the persecution to come outside. And He's not necessarily removing the difficulty of his words, Jesus' aim with the disciples and for you and me is simply to get a greater and greater, ever-increasing understanding of who God in Christ is. And knowing who God is redefines all of our troubles, problems, fears, and anxieties, and more. Because then we rightly interpret them in view of our eternal God. And it's not hard... To potentially hear disappointment in Jesus' reply to Philip. When he says in verse 9, Have I been with you so long, Philip? So long that you still don't know me? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do Do you not believe that I am in the Father? And the Father is... In me, the words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Notice that strange transition, words to works. And then Jesus repeats himself in verse 11, Believe me, again he says, that I am in the Father and the Father's in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Not only does Jesus speak what he hears the Father speaking, but now Jesus reveals that the Father is doing his works through Jesus. So now you go back and open up to John chapter 1 and begin to read through all the accounts, water to wine and um, all his activities in the temple and raising Lazarus and feeding the multitudes and walking on water and more. And we discover that Jesus says, yeah, that was the Father doing his works through me. In fact, Jesus is saying here that those works authenticate and prove his words. Which he also tells us that his words are the Father's words through him. Jesus is in submission to the Father. Okay. But notice the greater revelation Jesus gives to the disciples and therefore you and me. Verse 7 again. To know Jesus is to know the Father. To see Jesus is to see the Father. But now twice, verse 10 and verse 11, he ties the word belief. Do you not believe? He says in verse 10, and 
He commands in verse 11, believe that. And he says, I am in the Father and the Father's in me. If you have a bulletin, can you draw that? I mean, think, think for a moment. Just, we have to linger here. What is Jesus saying in that very moment when he says, I, Jesus, am in the Father. So Jesus is in the Father, Jesus says, and the Father encompasses the Son. In some way, Jesus Christ is in the Father, and the Father is all around the Son. I am in the Father. And equally true, not elevated above or subordinated to, I am in the Father. And then he says, and the Father is in me. So at the same time, Jesus is in the Father, and the Father encompasses the Son, at the exact same time, the Father who is all around the Son is in the Son, and the Son fully encompasses the Father. I'm just using synonyms, or trying to say a different way what Jesus says. I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. That's why I said this is deep waters of the mystery of the Trinity. How does that work? How is it possible that the Son's in the Father and the Father fully is around Him and yet the Son is fully around the Father who's in Him at the exact same time? And so I said a few moments ago that we can spend the entirety of our lives simply thinking about these short words that Jesus says and indeed we will spend all eternity Plumbing the gospel depths of this reality of what Jesus is saying. What what does this look like? We don't know. But this is true. And Jesus said it. And here we are confronted with. um, Kind of like a break in the clouds. An array of sunshine coming through. When we talk about God. We are not talking about a created being. God is the infinite and magnificent, transcendent, eternal, eternal, inhabiting eternity being who made all things. He is not an angel, he is not an animal, and he is not a man. He is God. There is no other. He is a being unlike anything that we can wrap our minds around, as it were. And yet when we read our Bibles, we come across things... Like this, where Jesus teaches us at the end of Matthew to baptize gospel professors in the name singular of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. One name, three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Or at Jesus' own baptism, He's claiming, Jesus says, to be God the Son made flesh, and He is. And as He comes out of the water, as God the Son comes out of the water, God the Father at the exact same time speaks from heaven, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased, while the Holy Spirit in a dove-like cloud descends upon Christ. All at the same time. And yet scripture everywhere has the exact same note. There is 
only one God. And so we worship only one God who is three persons. We don't worship three gods. And we don't just worship worship one person. We worship one God in three persons. Well, why do we believe that? Because that is the portrait and doctrine the text gives to us. So our great-great-grandfathers in the faith taught us as they spent their lives and their generations thinking through what in the world does it mean for Jesus to say, do you not believe that I'm in the Father and the Father's in me? So they should have believed that. And then he says as a command, believe that I'm in the Father and the Father's in me. Our great-grandfathers in the faith taught us to think about this as mutual indwelling. And the word that our forefathers used for this is perichoresis. We've talked about this before a while ago in John, around chapter 5 or so. It's a word that means circulation. So right now in your body, your body is... um, Blood is coursing through your arteries and veins everywhere at once, circulating through your body. And that image, in our modern understanding, applied to this is that there's some way in which all of God is in all of God, all at the same time, all the while being three persons. Make sense? We just have to marshal words and put them together to begin to understand what does it mean that we worship one and only one God who is three persons, one God and three persons. And so the way they thought about it, again, is perichoresis or circulation. And the idea is that to see Christ is to see the fullness of all of God himself, and yet he is still Jesus. Scripture tells us that the Father is not the Son, and the Father is not the Spirit. And the Son is not the Father, and the Son is not the Spirit. And the Spirit is not the Father or the Son, and yet the fullness of God dwells in each person. That's why in Colossians, chapter 1 and chapter 2, we are told, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Jesus bodily. But it was not the Father or the Spirit who was crucified for our sins. That was Jesus. Who died for our sins on the cross, was buried for three days and rose from the grave. And we're going to see soon in the John 14, if you glance down and the rest of this upper room discourse, we're going to see soon that the Holy Spirit will be sent from the Father and the Son to indwell you and me in a way that the Father and Son don't indwell you and me. So there's a distinction of the persons, and yet there's one God. And this is simply, I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. All this shows that our Bible teaches us one God, three persons. The name singular of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And all this shows us, as some have wrongly speculated, that God has modes. He has modes to himself, as if God 
uh, morphs to fit the occasion. He's an angry Father God in the Old Testament, and he's a gentle Jesus in the Gospels, and then he's a spirit in the epistles, they would argue. Or that Jesus turns himself, if need be, into the Father for this moment, and then morphs into the Son for this moment, and changes his mode to be the Spirit in this moment. That is the ancient damnable heresy of modalism. God does not change his modes because he doesn't have modes. He doesn't need to change modes because he has one God in three persons. To believe that God changes modes is a heresy and redefines who God is in the Bible and turns God into a false God and Jesus into a false Jesus. On and on we could go, but Jesus declares, I am in the Father and the Father's in me. And so it's as if God circulates within himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and yet is distinct. And even though your head and mine is spinning, trying to wrap our minds around the beautiful impossibility and mystery of God and his triuneness, we have to recognize that this is what Jesus is telling his disciples to comfort them. So think about that. His aim is not to confuse them more. There is persecution outside. Betrayal within. Fear and uncertainty. And so the answer to their fears and anxiety is is to give them more of himself. That is a greater conception of the Trinity. I am not sure that many of us, when we seek to comfort someone who's anxious and afraid, our first knee-jerk reaction is to delve into the mysteries of the Trinity and talk about perichoresis. But Jesus does. Jesus does. Jesus is seeking to untrouble their hearts. And friends, you all, we all come in here with varying degrees of fears, anxieties, and troubles. And when we see how vast and big and magnificent and mysterious who God is, it puts all of those fears and troubles into perspective, minuscule. Even though they may be severe and real and troubling, your life may be at stake. This is not to minimize any fear or anxiety, but it's to maximize who our big God is. And with a big God theology, puts everything else into perspective. Perichoresis. Jesus is in the Father while the Father is in Jesus. The Spirit is in them and vice versa. And you have the Trinity symbol. They needed to know that Jesus in himself is Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation, but now with skin on. The Word made flesh. And Jesus does clear the guilty now in this new covenant because He is the final and full sacrifice for our sins, Because the blood of bulls and goats could not take away our sins. They just reminded us of them. We needed a new, true, eternal, better sacrifice. Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. Friends, your 
guilt can be cleared in Christ by bowing the knee to him, repenting of your sins, and confessing him. Why? Because the Son is in the Father, and the Father's in the Son. That's why the gospel is possible. Church, and we live this side of Jesus' words. There, the cross and the empty tomb, Jesus has gone to the Father. Therefore, you must believe that he is in the Father. And not only that, since Jesus has gone to the Father, you must also pray in his name to work his works, which leads us to the second point. Jesus has gone to the Father, therefore you must pray in his name to work his works. Look at verses 12 through 14. He continues after admonishing them to believe. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Verse 14, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Again, simple words, but do you have questions brewing in your mind? Do you have tensions in your heart about what he says? Well, wait, but I am supposed to do greater works than Jesus? Um, these are more deep waters. What exactly are the greater works than what Jesus has done that whoever believes in him will also do? Um, and verses 13 and 14. Just take 14. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Is that a blank biblical check? He says it, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. So should we adopt a name it and claim it theology? God is, Jesus is a cosmic genie that we can conjure to give us the million bucks or whatever it is that we ask for. So that's... These two passages, one, are often not linked. They get divorced, 12 by itself. You're going to do greater works than Jesus. And then verses 13 and 14 on prayer, we can ask Jesus whatever we we want, and he's going to do it. So then you ask him whatever you want, and he doesn't do it. And so then you think that Jesus is maybe a liar, or you're not saved. And then there's just a, a spiral of confusion around these words. Because they get divorced and decontextualized. By divorce, I mean pulled apart, because there's different numbers, number 12, number 13, which we shouldn't do. And they get decontextualized because we just lift them up and someone says, oh, if you just ask anything in his name, he's going to give it to you, forgetting the framework of all of his teaching that begins with the first red letter in chapter 13 to the last red letter in chapter 17. What's going on? So first, look at the end of verse 12. He says, because I am going to the Father. 
So whatever Jesus is saying here about works and answered prayer, it's only possible because Jesus is, has gone to the Father from our vantage point in redemptive history. He has, in fact, died on the cross for our sins and risen from the grave. He's risen for our justification. Jesus is currently seated at the right hand of the Father. And if Jesus did not get up from the grave, then he did not go to the Father, and all of his words are a devastating lie. But he did get up, the Father rose him, and he is in heaven. So he's going to the Father. He is at the Father's side. But second, Jesus says in verse 12 that only those who believe in him will do these works. So he qualifies that what he's saying here, whatever the works are and whatever the answered prayer is, only those who believe truly is this true for. But again, what are these works? Greater works than Jesus? So is Jesus saying that we're going to walk on water and turn water into wine, that it should be normal and commonplace to hear that, oh yeah, at work the other day, Mike Kena fed the multitudes with his lunch pail. Are we going to heal the sick? Are we going to raise the dead? And, and that's where our thoughts can often go. We're going to do greater works than Jesus. And so those were pretty great, those signs. So sh- should we expect to do them? This is where I think Sinclair Ferguson is very, very helpful for us to understand the context and the framework of these passages. He points out in his commentary that we can't lose sight of the context and the audience. Jesus is speaking to the 11 apostles. Okay, we we all know that. But he points out that when you read through chapters 13 through 17... There are a handful of things that Jesus says that is only and specifically for the apostles. For example, I mean, an easy one is Judas is going to betray him. Peter is going to deny him. When we get to chapter 15, we're going to see that Jesus promises to send the Holy Spirit to these men in a unique way. To bring to their remembrance everything Jesus said, so that by implication they would finish writing the Bible. That was not something that he promised to anyone else other than the 11 disciples. And there are other things that he says. So, what Ferguson points out is that, okay, before we start going to application and thinking, what does this mean for me? And what, what is this, how does this intersect with me? We have to first think about the context and the audience. And and what he does is he points out and says, if you step back and think about the sweep of biblical history, the next uh, major biblical um, period, so to speak, is the book of Acts. The birth of the church and the first 30 years of the church's life. And what do we see? We see the apostles raising the dead. We see the apostles healing the sick doing some of the miracles, but not all of them, the works that Jesus did. So what cannot be argued is that if Jesus has the apostles in mind in these verses, 
we see it fulfilled in the book of Acts because they do those greater works. We see them performing miracles. We see many, many people get saved. The church grows to the ends of the earth. Remember what happened with Jesus? They all turned away from him in his ministry, in the Gospels, right? People kept leaving him and turning away. And so another aspect of this work is less on the miraculous. Um, l- let me see. Anyone who believes the gospel is the most miraculous miracle there ever was to be saved and born again by Christ. But turning water to wine and walking on water and feeding multitudes and more, those things, those things um, are unique miracles uncommon to our normal experiences. So the argument is that, yes, the apostles do miraculous signs for the purpose of authenticating their gospel message and the main accent in the, in, the, um, in the book of Acts is the belief and proclamation of the gospel and expansion of the church. So, just as also in chapter 13, remember what Jesus did? Taking a towel around his waist, washing their feet, telling them to, if I'm your Lord and Master, go and do likewise. And then he tells them, By this, all will know you are my disciples for each other if you have love for one another. Well, how do you define that love? It's the towel washing. So works, we tend to go right towards those sign miracles of walking on water and lose sight of the fact that the chief works is the humble, other-oriented, loving heart of Jesus to serve his people and to proclaim the gospel. So Ferguson argues that these words... Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do and greater works than these will do because I'm going to the Father. Jesus goes to the Father in Acts chapter 1 and then Acts chapter 2 pours out the Spirit and then they do these things. So I am persuaded by his argument that Jesus is specifically speaking to the apostles but by extension because we have the apostolic word and we also are full of the spirit that when he says greater works than these we should be thinking about john 13 work of washing other people's feet with our lives and evangelism and discipleship that is seeing the lost saved and the church built so by extension by application we do similar works through Loving service and growing the church through evangelism and discipleship. If Jesus had meant walking on water, raising the dead, feeding the multitudes, and even more exciting things than those, if that were possible, then we could also look back on the last 2,000 years of church history since the Spirit's been poured out and would unsurprisingly see thousands upon thousands, if not millions of examples of other believers doing that, and we don't. We don't. So Jesus' point is clearly not that every believer is going to walk on water, raise the dead, or necessarily do any uh, flashy miracle, which is wrongly taught by many parts of the charismatic movement. No, this is about loving, humble service, evangelism, and discipleship. So that then leads to the next confusing piece. 
verses 13 and 14, the so-called blank check prayer verses. And what I've done is I've intentionally put them together because they are inseparable from each other. What Jesus says in 12, or rather, how is 12 going to happen doing these works? 13 and 14 have to happen. That's the context. What does that mean? These verses tend to be decontextualized, blank, prayer check. Jesus is like a big sky genie. He's promised to give me whatever I want. And so these verses also are twisted by many Christians, especially in the charismatic movement. The point is, verses 13 and 14, prayer, is how verse 12 works. How are you going to work greater works? It's the prayers of verses 13 and 14. The connection is that our faithful works of loving service and church building through evangelism and discipleship don't happen apart from prayer. And again, the main audience are the apostles. And you go back to the book of Acts, and what are they doing all the time? Praying, and then preaching, and seeing people saved. So the apostles do, verses 13 and 14, Praying, Jesus, please save. Jesus, please deliver. Jesus, please build the church. Jesus, please glorify yourself. And Jesus is pleased to answer those prayers to see the church built through their loving service and gospel proclamation. So the connection here, this is not a blank check for God to give you a million dollars. Nor is it necessarily a promise that he will heal every sickness or every problem you have. That is a misinterpretation of the context of his words. His words are primarily about the advance of the gospel. People believing that Jesus is in the Father and the Father is in the Son. And the church growing and built. And it all happens after prayer. That's what's going on. So no, Jesus is not teaching that prayer is a blank check for whatever we want. It's really, if we're to bring Matthew to bear on John, this is Jesus' promise to build his church through the works of his apostles and by extension through people like you and me as we pray and preach the apostolic word. That's what he's doing. And the connected logic of this passage is that the Father, remember verse 11, The Father works in the Son. Jesus goes to the Father, pours out His Spirit into all of us. And now Jesus does His works by His Spirit through us. The Trinity is working His work through people like you and me. And here is the amazing connection. This is to comfort their hearts. This is to console them in troubles and trials. Which means if it's going to comfort them, dear church, it's meant to comfort us. It's meant to invigorate and encourage, put courage inside of us that, you know what? When I go share the gospel with my unbelieving friend, when when I go to um, minister to a fellow believer, I can trust that after prayer, Jesus will accomplish his work according to his will, because we have given it to him. That's the greater works, the advance and growth and expansion of the gospel through humble people who love each other. And so Jesus is seeking through these complex words and the complexities of the Trinity to give us tranquil hearts, 
Remember that word trouble means unstilled waters? So that the face of Christ would be reflected in our hearts. These truths that by extension we do works and we do pray and we see prayers answered, it's Christ advancing his gospel, not letting his word return void. And so friends, being here this morning, these words are meant to reorient your heart to see Christ to see the Father in the Son, not to fixate on your problems, not to fixate on your confusions, but to fixate on Jesus, or specifically, the fullness of God in Jesus, and to linger your your mind and your heart on that gospel truth of just simply seeing the Lord. That's that's the application of the message is to see the Lord and to believe and have everything else get put into place. Because in believing Him and in His gospel work, He accomplishes His word in us. And all along the way, as He points out in verse 13, the point of all is this, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. And the Father is glorified in the Son through the prayerful works of the church. Do you want to show your love for the Father, for sending His Son to save you and His Spirit to fill you? Then pray to Him and roll up your sleeves and love others. Father, we thank you for the gift of grace that we have in Christ. Lord, you have given us this mysterious and majestic portrait of who you are. You have given us the courage that we can actually pray and actually work because you have promised that your gospel will advance. The gates of hell will not prevail against your church. So, Lord, strengthen us with a vision of who you are, Lord Jesus, in the Father as the Father's in the Son. We pray this in Christ's name. And everyone said, Amen. Church, I want to invite you to stand as we sing this next song, and then we'll go to the Lord's table after we sing. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise